0: Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark.
1: Thank you, Mr. Intro. Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com. Don't forget our Vet Gurus Etsy store. Just head to etsy.com, E T S Y.com, and, and search for Vet Gurus, all one word, V E T G U R U S. And you'll find some amazing, amazing gear there, Mark. Um, some Vet Gurus branded items. Um, what more could you want? Functional, aesthetic, beautiful looking, and supports our podcast. So do it do it now well we'll actually do it
0: after the podcast how are you mark (laughs) i'm wonderful brendan and i I do um uh, when you first proposed the Etsy store, I thought, oh, there's going to be a lot of crappy gear there and no one will go there. But um, the stuff is actually really good. I'm, I'm, I've bought it some is. stuff for myself and some gifts and I'm going to visit again myself. But I don't want us to be the only people buying that, Brendan. I don't want it just to be you and me buying stuff. We need some other people to suit up.
1: Yes, we have had the odd um, purchase, but not as much as we thought, Mark. But so, um, yeah, we need some support, and it's good, good um, promotion. You know, have that um, vet vet gurus. It could be as little as buying a vet guru's sticker from the Etsy store and sticking it on something at work. The, <laughs> slap it on the back of your slap it on your laptop at work, Mark, <laughs> and uh, promote vet gurus. So you've got a little bit of news. You've been having some um, animal troubles at home, have you?
0: I do, I do. Um, uh, we have, um, as well as, you know, uh, the pets, uh, I've got some frogs and turtles, but we have cats, three cats, um, and they're getting up into their senior years and as they are want to do, and one of them s- uh, slipped into diabetes. He's, in, he's a black and white cat who goes... Under the moniker of Mr. Pink, because he showed up covered in pink spray when we first got him 18 years ago. Um, but he, um, yeah, he's become a diabetic. So we've been using, I wanted to just, um, quickly let you know that we've been using the, uh, Freestyle Libra sensor. We've plugged it on the side of him and, and I've got all my, um, uh, the curves and data on my phone, I just wave the phone over him, and it gives me the interstitial glucose level, which is a pretty reasonable representation of blood glucose level um and that's been allowing us to manage his diabetes so so it's been not too bad he's um I've got my fingers crossed because cats will go into remission um, a significant number of the patients. And uh, and so, yeah, we've got him on the special diet and the um, tauge j um, glargine insulin, um, the things that are most associated with um, uh, remission. And we've got our fingers crossed that he won't have to get a needle for the rest of his life, but he's taking it like a champ. Just at the moment, Brendan.
1: Ah, oh, he he would be in your cat, Mark. <laughs> um, the family stoicism kicks in there, Mark. Um, there you go. Yes, it's um, yeah, it's always interesting, isn't it? When um, your own animals get sick, um, you 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 forget about that. You you're in professional mode, and then um, you realise, hey, you know, this is personal, and you realise the the other side of the coin. You know, it's like the the doctors in the hospital becoming a patient, and then realizing that, you know, perhaps we should do things a little bit better. <laughs> for, for <our> <laughs> Not is, that I'm saying that's the case for your catch,
0: Mark. <laughs> uh, it is always good, though, to get that alternate perspective, you know, the perspective. And I think it makes us better veterinarians when we've been through it ourselves. It's much easier to, to say to someone, oh, look, you've got it, you know, this process whatever it is um i've been through it from your side with my pets and i can tell you that this is likely to be good or you need to worry about this Uh, that personal experience um, while so much of what you and i tell our clients is as evidence based as we can make it um, particularly with our unusual and exotic pets a little bit of personal experience I don't know, it just goes a long way. It adds to your sincerity. It it makes people trust the decisions they make a little bit better. So yeah. It's 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 always good to have that different the, the client's perspective, the authentic client's perspective.
1: And speaking of cats, Mark, does your cat like chasing moths?
0: Indeed, they all three of them are a little bit um, insect-focused. They're indoor cats and they're in a run, so um, any insect that's foolish enough to be attracted to the lights will have a little bit of a battle on their hands. And that's a worry, Brendan, because some of those insects are the topic of my first news story. Some of them are bogong moths. And we all know, well, I hope we know, that um, uh, the bogong moths uh, are... Well, exceptional insects in many regards. They um, emerge uh, from subterranean feeding up in the plains of the western uh, subterranean uh, pupation in the plains of Western Victoria, Northern New South Wales, and Southern Queensland. And then they fly hundreds of kilometres to the high plains, often referred to as the Bogong High Plains, near Kosciuszko in uh, the the um, the highlands of uh, Victorian New South Wales, where they cluster in caves, cool caves in the Australian Alps, where they spend the the uh, the, the the summer, um, and then they um, they make the reverse trip to lay their eggs in the in the um, plains of um, of the western part of Victorian New South Wales and Queensland, but their numbers have plummeted, Brendan, in the last well, a few years, the citizen scientists have been recording sightings um, and those sightings suggest that um, the numbers have plummeted by more than 99%, that we went from an estimated 4 billion bogong moths arriving in the alpine area each year um, to the number of moths being almost undetectable at the moment. Um, And over the last three years, the science, citizen science website, Moth Tracker, I wish they'd spent more time coming up with a better name than that. <laughs> <laughs> they should have asked you, Brendan. You're always good at coming up with names, but Moth Tracker seems a bit bland. Um, but they've been gar- gathering data from Australians who log their sightings of bogong moths to help scientists track their location and migration patterns. And um, the, the Moth Tracker website shows a decline in bogong moth sightings. Um, in 2019, there was 160 verified sightings, and that's dropped to less than 120 moths in 2021. Um, in New South Wales, there are only 54 moths spotted in 2019 and 11 in 2021. So they literally, from 4 billion down to numbers less than 100, It's it's just well, it's heartbreaking, Brendan. It's heartbreaking, and those moths are—you know—indigenous people used to travel uh, to um, the Australian Alps to feast on the huge numbers of protein and fat-rich moths uh, hiding in the caves there. And many of our endangered mammals did the same thing. So, in particular, the um, the uh, mountain. Uh, pygmy possum, which is the only Australian animal to um, to uh, you know hibernate to uh, astivate during the the winter, it requires a big feast of these to get through the summer and to actually breed. So the number of bogong moths declining leads to a decline in the mountain pygmy possums because they can't breed, and those animals in turn have become uh, critically um, affected by, you know, their numbers have been plummeting as well. And a friend of ours, um, uh, um, the the wonderful people at uh, womburu Foods, have been making artificial foods for the pygmy possum, which mimic the nutritional value of bogon moths. Um, but, geez, I hope these uh, the rains out in those areas uh, help increase the number of bogong moths. Um, I just worry also that uh, maybe these these uh, the numbers dropping might have something to do with uh, um, the the, the uh, uh, drought the la- over the last six years before we've had these last couple of years of wet weather has been the main uh, cause. but um, I wonder about insecticides too, Brendan. I hope that um, that uh, once those areas get a bit of rain, Um, that the Bogong numbers might start to climb again.
1: It is a worry, and hopefully not pet cats as well, Mark. (laughs) That's all I can say with this story.
0: If there's only 34 of them left in New South Wales, I would be worried my cats would (laughs) wipe them out. (laughs)
1: Yes, and I think you've you've we've seen the um, amazing pictures of them when they were in their big swarms, Mark, um, years and years ago where they'd head over, you know, to the ACT in Parliament, yeah. etc. So they're pretty amazing. So yeah, it is a little bit sad. I've got a bit of a, a brighter story here, Mark, a potentially brighter one, um, as as far as a discovery goes. And gee, the way this article's written, um, You'd think I'd written it, Mark. Um, <laughs> scientists have found, they found its legs. Now the search is on for the rest of the Thunderbird is go. Scientists have found <laughs> the drumsticks of ancient Australian bird weighing in at more than 600 kilograms. And we've we've mentioned this um, particular bird before, Mark, the Sturton's Thunderbird, a massive flightless bird standing more than three metres tall and it's one of the largest birds to ever have walked the earth mark um so they've been looking for they send little bits and pieces of it um and they the museum and art gallery of the northern territory mark which you and i have visited has been going to a particular site northeast of alice springs in the northern territory looking for fossils and they found a a site which you know. Has lots of lots of bones in there, Mark. Um, They think around about three thousand individual animals all jumbled together. So they're excited the fact they've got so many fossils there, but um, they're all stacked on top of each other, and they're they're worried that they won't be able to um, find anything um, of use. Um, But it changed this year, Mark, when they started slowly, and it looks like they only dig about five centimeters. um, you know, um, in, you know, in in a few weeks or whatever, um, they started to find a partial skeleton in full articulation of one of these birds, Mark. And they, that they were seeing this little thunderbird leg stick in there with all the bones where they had should be there in life, and now they're just slowly chipping away, chipping away at it, and they're expecting that they might have a, a complete skeleton there. So. Who knows? It might be another another year or two before um, they they manage to uncover all of it. But imagine meeting that bird, marker A, a six hundred kilogram um, bird with a pretty damn big beak as well. So um, yeah, they're they're um. That reconstruction—I always worry about those reconstructions of the, the pictures there, Mark. and We spoke about it before, haven't we? With the <laughs> with the the artist's impression of the colorations of the birds and um, putting in the flesh and the bones and the flesh and, and the, and the um, soft tissue and the feathers, etc., on the bones there. But um, pretty interesting specimen.
0: Um, I love so. that. I, I do. I I um. There's a whole um, sub genre of my Twitter account, which is associated with paleo art, um, where people, um, like you said, uh, try and apply the best science to the findings they get so that they can generate a lifelike image. And, um, geez, it's fascinating to see what they come up with um, you know, given the relatively, maybe sometimes very small amount of data they're working with, um, but yeah, it, this is a a pretty interesting find. And that Alkuta fossil reserve um, is um, it's only open one day a year. I missed it this year, but I reckon I'm actually going to go out to that site one time and um, mm. and jiggle around some of the rocks in the in the <laughs> in the in the bush and see what we can come up with. But the other thing that's interesting about that, Brendan, you were talking about them only pulling out um, five centimetres of, you know, uh, of new um, excavation. But when we were out that country and there's like, I don't know, five or six um, uh, fossil fields that you can visit out in Western Queensland and the Northern Territory, and they all have much, much more material than they there's huge amounts of material stored in warehouses it's a bit like um raiders of the lost ark where everything's bound up and put away waiting for someone to do the research on it um so so much more the exciting bit is excavating it and finding stuff but it takes painstaking work years long after each bit's cut out before they can um you know Make adequate scientific use of it, so it's not a surprise they only do a little bit of um, digging each year because they've got so much to work on.
1: Yes, well, I look forward to you sending some pics from your little dig there, Mark, and <laughs> finding the drumsticks. Of, <laughs> of. <laughs> um, I seen. just,
0: I sent. I've just sent you the picture of me meeting. Um, uh, oh, you have <laughs> too. Yes, and I can see
1: it was well within uh, COVID times there with your mask yep, on. Yep. Well done. Um, you you don't look dissimilar from, from the animal behind you. <laughs> uh, excellent. Yes. Very good. Okay, let's jump into our main topic this week, which is me quizzing you on a common condition you would certainly see in practice, Mark. Pododermatitis in birds, foot problems. Very, Specifically, very common. the underside of the foot mark. So I'm going to rapid fire you some questions that might zoom around in different directions depending on. Your <laughs> it always answers, feels mate.
0: like I'm doing a, a, a viva, a viva voce exam. But, um, well, you always With make the questions laughs. so With easy that markers. I get them right. <laughs> so is it common, Mark? Do you see It's very common. Of- it's These pressure sores on the underside of the feet of various bird species are a surprisingly common thing to see. They're multifactorial. There's a whole bunch of reasons they occur, and so they occur in different species. Um, but uh, captivity and some of the actions that we have, uh, that we apply to captive birds, make them very, very common, Brendan. And?
1: What are the common species? Are, are there particular species that you see it more commonly in or not?
0: Yes, there definitely is a uh, bit of a little bit of a pattern um, that heavy bodied birds um, do seem to be uh, predisposed to this. So, we the, the, the sort of classes of birds I think of uh, definitely birds of prey. Um, Larger birds of prey, um, but birds of prey in captivity, um, they definitely are one group that we worry about, uh, pododermatitis, bumblefoot. Um, uh, Chickens and many of the uh, larger birds who spend time on the ground, terrestrial birds, uh, water birds, because those birds often have some of their body weight taken away from pressure on the feet by being in the water and so small changes in their husbandry maybe not spending as much time in the water and so bearing more weight on their feet um, tends to uh, make it more likely and Large parrots, macaws and and, uh, cockatoos, particularly galahs, particularly those birds uh, like amazons that are prone to uh, easily becoming overweight, um, they definitely have those problems as well. So we see it across all species, but definitely see a concentration in those ones.
1: And you've sort of hinted towards one of the questions I'll have later on about the prevention, Mark, with that. But I want to really dig in, um, no pun intended <laughs> or perhaps, to the actual treatment of these, especially, Mark. But before we talk about that, um, you know, um, for vets who aren't seeing birds very often, um, is the diagnosis pretty easy, um, picking these up as a general rule?
0: Yeah, it generally is, and and it is one of the things that I think it's important to during your normal physical exam um, to make sure you examine that uh, plantar aspect of the feet. Now, obviously, once the disease becomes severe and the feet become painful and the birds won't weight bear on them, um, and particularly once it gets to the stage where there's a different shape, the feet get swollen or puffy or erythematous, the colour changes, then that diagnosis is relatively easy to make. But in the early stages, you might just, uh, there might be nothing visible in the perching bird. The changes in weight bearing might be ablated by the excitement of being in the veterinary hospital and so you don't notice a lameness. Um, And the birds, um, until you turn them over and look at the plantar surface of their feet, you might not see anything. But when you do, you'll see the loss of the papillae. The feet will look smooth in particular areas. They might have cracks in the early stages um, and there might be um, subtle areas of erythema um, and um, and even some erosion of the surface uh, epithelium, and identifying that earlier makes it much easier to deal with.
1: So obviously, a lot of these will be brought, be seen fairly readily because they are advanced, and the client is bringing that patient in because my bird has a sore foot. Exactly, but you stress a really important point there in that examining the underside of those feet should be a part of a general clinical examination of any bird that comes into the clinic, Mark. How do we do that?
0: How do <laughs> we do it? Well, yeah. It's relatively, um, it depends on the size of the bird, but um, for most of those birds, uh, let's say we've got a, a cockatoo, then most of the time I'm going to uh, handle the bird, I'm going to watch it in the cage first get my distant examination out of the way. But then when I have the bird in hand, I'm probably going to restrain it in a towel to start with. And I'm, it's very important with those birds because they often have a... Uh, you know, a very emotional relationship with their owner, it's important to warn the owner that you're going to restrain the bird, that there may be some vocalization associated that with that depending on the nature of the bird. Many birds, many of those cockatoos and macaws will be Accustomed to that gentle handling, if they have good owners, um, and I literally do roll them onto their back. I try and take the towel away from their feet. In a big bird like a macaw, I might have someone help me to direct the feet to me, um, and uh, and the birds will, you know, particularly when they're upside down. Um, most birds will try to reach out and grab things so that they'll be moving their feet, um, exposing the plantar surface. And with a little bit of magnification and light, you can get a very good view of what's going on there. And of course, once that's happened, uh, I particularly if I have an extra person there, I'll palpate those areas and see if I can feel any differences in texture or um, the degree of movement of the feet. You'll the extra person is there because, very often with those birds, you will get grabbed by the feet. Uh, the birds grabbing you with their feet, um, and um, and you sometimes need uh, an extra pair of hands to disentangle yourself from the the feet. So, um, but just a good look with the bird upside down, I suppose, is the short end answer, Brendan.
1: Okay, we flip the lid. We flip the bird. <laughs> <laughs> So I said we're going to concentrate on the surgery, but just, just briefly, do you want to mention what other sort of diagnostics you'd consider doing before you jump in and, and cut open that? Yeah. Um, or, 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 or the ones that you don't, don't jump into surgery and, and treat medically? What um, broader things are you going to do um, for that patient when you see those
0: sore feet, Mark, um, and why? You really need to make an estimate of the... uh, Once the surface has become eroded and bacterial contamination of deeper tissues occurs, you need to make an assessment of the extent of the depth of that uh, erosion and infection. And you need to do that because the extent of that damage is a pretty good indicator of the likely outcomes. In the most, there are published... um, uh, Uh, what's the right severity scales Um, and uh, they generally run from uh, one to five. Um, There's some slight differences between species in some of the published scales but essentially five the most serious ones the the, uh, external lesions are associated by severe osteomyelitis um, and there's a significant loss of the pedal function and those Those findings, if you don't take a radiograph and you have a severely affected one um, and you're not, those ones that are in the most severe category there, you need to talk to the owners about humane euthanasia because the chance of a successful treatment is very low with those ones that have significant osteomyelitis.
1: Yeah. So... Let's jump into the, well, let's let's separate it into which one would you consider just medical treatment and why and, and what is that? And then we'll jump into the surgery.
0: Well, it's a little bit of a, a um, like the problem itself, you have to assess uh, some of those m- multifactorial predisposing factors. So for a relatively, you know, I've seen it in cockatiels, for example, those birds, lorikeets commonly get it. Those birds are not generally big-bodied birds. And so um, if you have a stage where there's some infection, subcutaneous tissues are affected, um, there's visible swelling, um, but the infection hasn't gotten past that uh, uh, dermal layer, the the dermis underneath the epidermis, um, then you could treat that uh, um, without necessarily going to surgery. And it would involve pain relief, it would involve uh, some topical dressings maybe. It uh, definitely would involve antibiotics and also uh, some uh, changes to the perch structure inside the cage so it's uh, not applying the unique pressure point on the foot. So we might wrap the perch in neoprene rubber um, so that there's a soft surface for that foot to rest on and then make sure it's cleaned regularly. What's the chance of a bird chewing on that sort of right oh, Depends on the species, but it's pretty good if it's a parrot. But <laughs> the good thing about neoprene is that um it's non toxic and um if the the troublesome parrot does ingest a little bit, it's generally not gonna be a problem. It's not gonna be something that um compromises its uh it, you know, they tend to break that stuff up into relatively small pieces when they chew it and uh um, most of the time they drop most of it on the ground, um, but what they ingest tends not to be a problem. Good.
1: So let's jump into that surgery, Mark, that I've been waiting for. <laughs> You've been how how aggressive <laughs> do we get with these, um, with the surgery? Is it a, Do you need to be bold with these? And, um, you know, how, how deep do we dig? How far do we go with them? You know, what's the tips and tricks you have for this?
0: Well, I think my main tip is that it is good to be a little bit bold. There's going to be some blood but to get these to heal you have to remove all that dead tissue and give it a chance to granulate in with healthy tissue. If there is any uh, remaining necrotic tissue, remaining severely infected tissue, um, then that's going to predispose against a successful outcome. You do want to be careful you want to be, uh, you know, obviously, as we talked about before, if we've gotten to the point where there's osteomyelitis and there's some um, infection uh, damaging the tendons that run down through that plantar surface of the foot, um, then that's going to, you know, if you're cutting into that part of the, the, uh, the foot, um, then the chances of a successful outcome are going to be um, significantly less. So I tend to be focusing on removing all the dead tissue. Um, I am caught sometimes where even if I've taken radiographs I'm tracking down, then all of a sudden I have exposed tendons and have to get on the phone and talk to the owner about the the uh, uh, um, change in prognosis. Um, but most of the time if you take uh, the time to remove most of that damaged tissue um, and you don't get to the level where the ten- the tendons are damaged. Um, you just need to be aggressive to get all the dead stuff away. There is going to be some bleeding with these, Brendan, and I don't like to... Um, I just like to use pressure to control it, um, and uh, um, uh, but I like to um, use those... They often refer to them as donut bandages or um, there's the commercial... Uh, corn um, bandages that you can buy at the chemist for human corns. Um, they're they're round um, and they're adhesive, and you can put those on the feet so that they take pressure off that middle um, area where the the uh, the wound has occurred, because ongoing pressure will preclude normal blood flow that allows the granulation tissue to build up. So, what do you
1: put? on that tissue that you've derided, Mark. Or that that, that, that um, viable tissue. What's your what's your um, packing technique? What do you put in there and, and bandaging? I, I like to use
0: donut. Yeah, I like to use um the the um The wound gels, um, you know, Duoderm is one of the brand names that I use frequently. Um, I like what you're trying to do is set an environment where granulation can occur as quickly as possible. Um, And so those uh, um, uh, water-soluble wound gels tend to go into the deficit area. Um, And then the bandage arrangement uh, is generally one that's trying to uh, a range, you know, a donut of support around that area, um, and then you want to bandage it all to hold it in place and protect it from contamination. And I think one of the things about these cases that's important to talk about is the surgery, um, you know, you need good magnification, you need to take some time and remove all the the dead tissue, and so that's uh time-consuming and somewhat expensive exercise but then you must follow up with repeated uh, bandage changes and and cleans and take that um, can as the wound gel becomes contaminated to continue to cultivate good uh, wound uh, good wound healing you've got to make sure that you get in and replace that on a regular basis and to do that well does involve a short general anesthetic again um, and sometimes this might take five or six anaesthetics over a three- or four-week period to get um, good healing underway.
1: Sorry, I put myself <laughs> off mute. How often does it bandage change typically?
0: Um, it depends a little bit on the extent of the... The, the size of the wound. It depends a little bit on the nature of the bird. Um, I would generally be talking about changing it uh, between every two and three days would be my general plan, but there are some times when it has to be done daily. Um, I tend to find birds of prey uh, require a little bit more um, assiduous, rapid changing of the bandage, um, but, um, but, yeah... I suppose two, every th- two or three days um, over the first uh, three weeks,
1: and associated sort of medication, Mark. Along with that, um, after that surgery, what do we what do we place Seth Bird on?
0: Well, while the the problem is not primarily a contagious, infectious one, um, infection seriously compromises the the. Uh, you know, complicates the initial problem and compromises the rate of healing. So antibiotics are an important uh, part of the treatment and uh, using antibiotics guided on sensitivity, culture and sensitivity testing of the excised tissue is a good direction to go in. It's also good to, this is painful and that's why the birds are often brought in because they're not using the, the foot to start with. they Holding it off the ground, or up the perch, all the time, um, and uh, and also the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories that uh, we would tend to send the birds home with have blood flow improving qualities, so that um, so that. Perfusion tends to be a little bit better uh, in the birds that have, for example, meloxicam is probably our first choice to send them home with, and uh, and those birds uh, um, don't feel as sore because of that analgesic and anti-inflammatory effects, and uh, and they they uh, have slightly better perfusion as a result.
1: And it sounds like it's one of these conditions that. The owner needs to be really keyed up at the start, as far as that it's going to be a prolonged process and potentially not inexpensive as well, Mark. So uh, I presume you have a, a reasonable a number of clients that may stop before the process is started um, and or um, just 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 are not suited for it. So um, I expect you have some clients that have birds with decent pododermatitis that, that you just feel that they're just not going to be able to go through with the whole process and you you maybe steer them towards euthanasia even with some of them.
0: It's not an unreasonable thing. You know, Our uh, one of our very good friends in her wisdom has said to me that um, – uh, humane euthanasia is not a bad welfare outcome when it comes to veterinary medicine. And I. this is a classic example where uh, the birds, uh, if this is a painful condition and it will get progressively worse and eventually infected wounds will become septic. And so if people cannot see their way um, through the process, um, then humane euthanasia is a perfectly reasonable um, uh, course of action. And there are some patients, um, uh, who will need, you know, a degree of lifelong management. Um, uh, I know of several, uh, birds who have early stage changes who, um, need constant weight management, um, and ongoing analgesia because of the scarring of the original inflammation. Um, so it, it is an important discussion to have with clients that this isn't just a little sore on the, the underside of the foot that's going to be okay once we do a single thing to it. Um, it's a multifactorial problem that, uh, that may well have the best treatment in the world and still not have a perfect outcome. Um, so they need to be completely prepared for that possibility.
1: Yep, and very briefly, prevention, Mark, you sort of hinted at diet with those overweight ones, but what other aspects do you really concentrate on to
0: prevent pododermatitis in our pet birds? There's probably two quick points I'd make with that. The first one is exercise, um, that sedentary birds are, as you mentioned, more predisposed to being overweight, but also they don't generate the same blood pressures that allow normal perfusion. And the more sedentary they are, um, the more likely it is that um, they're going to get you know, pressure points underneath their feet if they stay in one spot. The other side of that coin is what they're resting on. And I think making sure that you have perches of varying diameter um, and uh, that uh, the birds move onto those perches so that they've got activities in different regions. Um, That's those perches that are of a uniform diameter, horizontal, and the bird just sits on them and never moves. Um, Their feet are not designed for those perches. Perfectly circular dowels, and they will definitely develop pressure point problems. Um, so, make for variety of perches and keep the birds exercised, and that's going to make a big difference uh, to the likelihood that they develop bumblefoot as they get older.
1: Preventative care, as usual, Mark. It ends up Going around back to that in the end. Um, any final comments before we head out of here?
0: I think that um, uh, the the take home message I would want people to take out of this podcast is to make sure they do that uh, physical exam. It's uh, really important. To, the earlier you get onto this, the the uh, the much more positive the likely outcome is going to be, and um, and certainly those severe cases that come into us, we do need to think about quality of life questions. Um, but um, make sure you do your physical, ex- your annual physical exam, biannual physical exam, turn the birds over and look at the underside of their feet.
1: Well put, Mark, as always. And with that, we are out of here, and Mister. Our man's here so we better go talk to you all next week thanks for listening thanks for listening to the
0: vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us by email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again See you next time.